Broadcasting live from the Raiders practice facility at the Intermountain Healthcare Performance Center. This is the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. Presented by Tequila Embajador. Been great. We got 86 players here. And uh, I think it sends a message to our fans how serious we are about winning. And uh, we're putting the, the work in. We're getting to know each other. We're getting to know our new defense. And uh, we're excited. We really are. That was the voice of Raiders head coach John Gruden talking about OTAs, phase three of OTAs. We are now in week two of the phase three portion of OTAs. And uh, I'm here at uh, the Raiders facility in Henderson, and it is a full parking lot again. So uh, as John mentioned, 86 players on hand. Uh, I know that last week when we were there um, on Wednesday, there were 83 players on the field. Just because guys don't always get on the field doesn't mean that that they're present and accounted for. So there were 86 of 89 players last week uh, in the building participating in one form uh, or another and that's tremendous participation and you know we talked about this last week by the way uh, welcome back you're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor brought to you by Tequila Embajador hope everybody had a, a great weekend and remembered what that weekend was all about and the sacrifices uh, that so many of our fellow patriots and Americans um, of every creed, color, religion, everyone—we're all Americans, and um, and every single um, you know part of us of this great country uh, paid an ultimate price for us to be able to sit here and talk about football. Think about that. Um, so uh, never ever forget about that, um, and always in in honor mode. Uh, we we designate a day, Memorial Day, but it's something that we should be thinking about all the time. Uh, everybody that's served this country. Um, and ultimately paid the price for us to be able to have the fun that we do and make the livings that we do and enjoy our lives the way we do. I know it's not always great, and I know that uh, times can get testy, but ultimately uh, we live in in the best country in the world, and uh, we're trying to do the best that we very well can. And uh, we know that there are a lot of people that paid the price for us to keep marching forward and try to get this thing right. Uh, But – Today, uh, the Raiders are back on the field, and uh, as I talked about, here at Henderson, there is a uh, full parking lot uh, out there, so uh, players are are back at it, and as John was talking about, for him, and you know, I know this to be the case, he's literally just getting a look at his team right now. Uh, It's hard, not hard, but... You know, you don't really know what you have. Everything's on paper, really, until you get it out on the grass and see it for the first time. There's a lot of new players here with the Raiders. There's a lot of young players that are growing up before our very eyes. And uh, this was a point in time. This was a step in the in the process that the Raiders didn't have available to them. Nobody had it uh, last year. Uh, but I know that for the Raiders, for John Gruden, uh, this is a very important part of the process. And for him to be able to get a look at what he has to work with now, how everybody reported back, uh, what's the physical condition? Um, you know, did players follow the instructions and, and do what they needed to do in the weight room and, and eating wise and diet wise and all of that stuff? Um, agility wise, did they come back, you know, working on some of their flaws? Did they come back ready to compete for jobs? Did they come back ready to hold on to jobs? How does it all fit? You know, you've got a new defensive coordinator here in Gus Bradley and a new defensive system with a very young team that. We've talked about this so many times. 
between the youth, between the fact that there were a lot of new players last year, uh, it just didn't really take hold. There were also injuries and there was COVID-19. Um, you know, none of these are excuses. It just what it is what it is. And you have to be honest about it and uh, really put it all in into the pot. And, you know, you mix it all up. And, and what we saw was what we saw last year. Uh, the Raiders are trying to improve on that. And that's why this is such an important time for them right now, especially defensively, trying to get this thing right. And uh, we want your your calls because what, today what I'd like to talk about, number one, is you know you look at this defensive line that the Raiders uh, assembled, have assembled, and it starts to me with Yannick Ngakwe and Clee Farrell and Max Crosby and whatever kind of rotation we're going to see from those three players, uh, however Gus Bradley decides to use them, the amount of snaps that they each play, all of that, it kind of starts to me uh, with those three guys. When it comes to getting pressure on the quarterback. Yes, Solomon Thomas. Yes, Quentin Jefferson. Uh, yes, Jonathan Hankins. Uh, those guys, Darius Phylon, from the interior are going to do their job as well. And you definitely need to get a push up the middle. Uh, but I really think that the three players, Max Crosby, Yannick Ngakwe, Clee Farrell, um, you throw in Carl Nassib, uh, who had a down year last year, but as every, um, you know, uh, skill that you need to be able to give the Raiders five to six sacks. There's no reason why uh, Carl Nassib, if he gets on the field, earns his way onto the field, uh, can't contribute five or six uh, sacks this year. Malcolm Kuntz, the rookie from Buffalo, who seems to be on a fast track to some playing time, uh, even if it's in a very, very defined role, uh, maybe as a third down specialist or a pass down specialist uh, trying to get to the quarterback. He has a knack for doing that, and the Raiders need all the help that they can get in that regard. Uh, but when you look at the whole collection of that defensive line and, and talking about the defensive ends in particular, uh, but as a whole group, what are your expectations for the amount of sacks that this group can come up with. Remember, there's 17 games, so you got to keep that in mind. Last year, and uh, this is it's almost painful to say this to Raider Nation uh, to just you feel like you're you're just kind of exposing an open wound. But last year, that group, different faces, granted, but last year that group, the defensive line group, contributed act, uh, all of 14 and a half sacks to the cause. The Raiders finished with 21 sacks last year. It was near the bottom of the league. Uh, they just couldn't get to the quarterback. And sacks aren't the end-all, be-all, but they are extremely important. They lead to turnovers. They're big plays that knock teams uh, off schedule. You know, all of a sudden, you don't get to the quarterback. And even if he doesn't complete the pass, instead of looking at a third and 14, you know, now it's it, it might just be third and manageable because you weren't able to get to the quarterback. There's all a slew of reasons why getting sacks, getting the quarterback to the ground are so important. And on top of that, no question about it, just getting pressure in general, making life difficult for the quarterback, knocking him off his spot, making him throw from uncomfortable angles, making him throw from uncomfortable positions. Not everybody uh, is good under pressure. In fact, Statistically, most quarterbacks struggle under pressure. Duh, right? Um, that, that it should go without saying. Uh, some guys handle it much better than others. We all understand that. But typically, if you're if you're getting pressure on a quarterback, 
they're going to feel it and their play is going to reflect it. I point you right to the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes, arguably the best quarterback in the NFL in a slew of different categories, one of which is the ability to play under pressure. But even he can be susceptible when it's too much pressure, when, it's, when it gets turned up another notch. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers turned it up another notch against Patrick Mahomes. Obviously, it didn't help that the Chiefs were without their two starting tackles. That was the game right there. Patrick Mahomes had no time to do what he does. And even a quarterback as good as he is, making plays with his legs, extending plays in order to make plays down down the field, even a quarterback that has all of that going for him, the best in the business at that very thing, is going to struggle when you're getting constant pressure on uh, the quarterback. Now, it's you know, you're not sitting here saying, oh, the, the Raiders can duplicate what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did. They, they had a very, very good defensive line. They had many a good rotation. They had guys with all various types of skill sets. They did it in different ways. They blitzed. They did a lot of things the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did to have a great pass rush. Uh, I don't think that the Raiders are going to take a dramatic step forward and all of a sudden be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But if they can go from 14 sacks, 14 and a half sacks, which they had last year, to 25 to 30 just from the defensive line, Think about that. That's a huge improvement. And you add in another perhaps eight to ten sacks from, excuse me, from um, you know your 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 linebackers, your safeties, your cornerbacks. If you look at Gus Bradley, uh, his defenses in the past typically average about seven to ten sacks, seven to eleven sacks uh, from from players outside of just the defensive line, uh, and I think. When you look at the Raiders and you look at guys like Nicholas Morrow, uh, Corey Littleton has had a history of being able to get to the quarterback a couple, three times a year. Uh, I think that Jonathan Abram playing that box safety position where he's going to be closer to the line of scrimmage and easier tapped into in the blitz game is going to be able to come up with some uh, – some potential sacks or at least get pressure on the, on the quarterback. I think guys coming off the corner, um, Gus Bradley has done a good job over the years with that as well. He doesn't blitz a lot, uh, but he does blitz, and he, he's had success doing that. Uh, so keep an eye on, on that too. So when I say the defensive line, you know, getting up to 30 sacks per game, which when you start looking at the defensive line and you start looking at what guys have done in the past – it's really not hard to project that that can happen, that they can turn this thing from 14.5 sacks easily, easily, if guys stay healthy, into 30 sacks just from the defensive line alone. When you start talking about Yannick Ngakwe, he's a guy that gets 8 to 10 sacks every single year. When you talk about Max Crosby coming back healthier, coming back in a slightly different role, Probably not going to get, you know, the 900 snaps that he played last year. Probably going to go back more toward, you know, maybe 200 less. Let's just say 200 less snaps, whatever the case might be. They're going to, I think, reduce the snaps a little bit, play him in a more defined role in order to, we talk about this all the time, preserve him, 
keep him healthy. He wasn't healthy last year. There were some diminished returns, playing way too many snaps last year. But you get him on a more streamlined snap count and allow him to play with more energy, with more gas in the tank. It's just he's going to be a more effective player. So if he can get back, think about it. He had 10 and a half sacks his rookie year, playing about 200 less snaps than he played last year. I know there were injuries uh, that, he, that he was dealing with last year, and that certainly contributed to it. But that also comes along sometimes with playing too many snaps. So um, if, if, if you can get Max Crosby back to getting the 10 sacks that he is fully capable of getting, you add that to Yannick Ngakwe, who another 10-sack guy, uh, there's 20 sacks right there. And if you want to go 8-8, eight and eight, okay, there's 16 sacks from two players. That's more than they had last year as an entire defensive line. I think Clee Farrell playing a full season, if he's able to stay healthy, five to six sacks, right? So now if you go with the eight and eight from Yannick and, and Max Crosby, that's 16, that's 21 from your three different, uh, you know, your, your three main defensive ends. Carl Nassib, four, five sacks. You know, now you're talking about 26. Malcolm Kuntz, you know, even if he gets four sacks, now you're talking about 30. And that doesn't even get into Quentin Jefferson, who's usually a three to four sack kind of a guy. Uh, Jonathan Hankins will probably come up with a sack or, or two. Solomon Thomas, when he gets on the field, will come up with, um, you know, a couple of sacks. Darius Phylon, when you look at, I know, hey, he hasn't played in a couple of years, have to take that into account. There's no question that you have to. But if he is back, and he's on the field, and he's playing like he normally plays and doing what he normally does, there's a guy that's going to give you four to five sacks. So now, all of a sudden, you're looking at that defensive line, and we've gotten to 35 just sitting here talking about it. And nothing that we're saying, we're not saying that any of these guys are going to play above and beyond what they normally do, That which could happen. That absolutely could happen. Max Crosby can have a... Complete bounce back year where you're talking about 12 to 14 sacks. Yannick Ngagwe is fully capable of doing that. So, but we're talking, literally just talking about guys doing what they've done in the past. And then you start adding it up. And all of a sudden, that defensive line is sitting there at 30, 35 sacks. They had 14.5 last year. And don't forget, there's a 17th game. So, Add, you know, that, that, that'll be reflected, too, in the totals. 30 to 35 sacks from the defensive line this year? It's not unrealistic. We're sitting here lowballing it. <laughs> We're saying 8 and 8 for Ngakwe and Max Crosby. They're, both of those guys are co- capable of doing that. Both of those guys are fully capable of doing that. There's no way that Cleek Farrell playing a full season, and remember, he missed – a few games last year. There's no reason to think that he can't get five to six sacks. Maybe he has a breakthrough, and it's even more than that, which he's capable of doing that too. I think he's starting to take, um, you know, understanding the player that he is and understanding his position and what's, what, what, you know, what he's capable of doing. And he talked about this last week, becoming a more cerebral-type pass rusher, somebody that thinks about it, studies it a little bit more. If I'm him, I'm talking to Yannick Ngagwe, trying to take some notes. I would even talk to 
Kuntz, Malcolm Kuntz. I we had remember when we had Malcolm Kuntz on the on the air shortly after the draft, talking about his approach to rushing the passer and how impressive we all were that he wasn't just talking about beating a, a, a guy with speed or power, which you know at at the level that he was playing at, the kind of player that he is playing in the MAC. He was fully capable of doing that and showed it often. But, but he didn't rely on that. That wasn't his calling card. No, his calling card was studying pass rushing and understanding the art of it and the chess game of it and the various moves, setting people up, learning uh, different techniques, studying the opponent. What does the tackle do? His his footwork. Uh, is he a guy that jabs at you? Is he a guy that kind of backs up a little bit? Is he a dancing bear? Is he a, a aggressive? Does he wait for you to make the contact, or does he make the contact first? All those little things that you learn studying. You know who's playing in front of you and who you're going against that week, and understanding it. Studying other pass rushers. You know, there's, there's pass rush academies now, basically. Uh, some of the premier, Von Miller from the Denver Broncos has one. I want to say Aaron Donald uh, does something similar to that, especially with young college kids. Uh, but he's always available, and, you know, he's a workout warrior, and he always works out with, with other players, and he's always available, you know, to, to talk to and for, for pointers. If I'm Clee Farrell, and keep in mind, Clee Farrell was – Probably the highest-rated Raiders defensive player last year. He was the 16. He ended up the season as the 16th best defensive end, highest-rated defensive end according to Pro Football Focus. When he was healthy before COVID and 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 the injuries that set in, he was hovering right there, 10, 12. So he was on his way to having a really good year. Some things happened toward the end of the year. COVID 19 took a big bite out of him. Injuries took a big bite out of him. But prior to that, he was playing really well. And it's because he cares. It's because hey, he's also very good. Understands what his role is, has done what the coaching staff has asked uh, of him. But as he's getting into his third year, having sort of mastered parts of the game now and, and, and really accentuated some of his strengths, I think in talking to him last week, it sure sounded like he was kind of focusing now on, okay, how do I get better in some of the areas that I haven't been as proficient at? Remember last week how we talked about how the great ones during the offseason tinker, stay on top of their strengths, but what they really do is they focus on their weaknesses. You may not ever be able to turn that weakness into an extraordinary elite-level talent or skill set but if you can turn it in from but, but if you could turn it from a weakness a flaw into something that you can do adequately proficiently be av- just average at really it makes a world of difference you look at the great players in the league and all of sports in the NBA I, it's funny always talking you know back in the day to Kobe Bryant uh, rest in peace about what he would work on during the offseason. It wasn't what he did well, it was what he did bad. 
And so when he would come back every single year, every single year, Kobe had a new trick or multiple tricks in the toolbox. And guys would be like, ah, you know, last year we could attack this or last year we could count on him not being able to do that. Not anymore. No, you fix and work on the weak points of your game. And it sure sounds like Cleve Farrell was focused on that and has been focused on that. It'll be interesting to see where he is this year as a pass rusher and how that equates to this defensive line that we're talking about and what this defensive line is capable of doing in this system, staying healthy, getting the necessary snaps. There's no reason this defensive line, without doing anything extraordinary individually, everyone just plays the way they're capable of playing. No reason this defensive line can't get 30 to 35 sacks. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. We'll talk to you on the other side. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. I think my biggest thing has just been uh, I want to I wanna really tone up. I got up to the weight that I wanted to get to. Now it's time to really slim it down. I think uh, the biggest thing for me, man, is just my IQ. You know, my football IQ is something that's been I've been honing in on a lot. You know what I mean? Not just... You know, my get-off and my athleticism, but do I know um, slide protection? Do I know where the the center's going? Do I know when I got the one-on-one? And I feel like that takes out a lot of thinking for especially young players, and especially someone like me who, you know, when I come in on third down, I'm the guy that's kind of telling everybody, um, you know, where we got to be, where we got to cover up spots, and where we got to watch out for, we got to run a quarterback. So I think my IQ been the biggest thing for sure. Man, really like to hear that from a young player. Feels like some of these young guys are are, are turning a little bit of a corner for the Raiders. Obviously, it has to happen uh, out on the grass. But uh, the intellectual side of professional sports, it's really no joke. The mental side of professional sports is no joke. And, and, you know, we, we, we talk about this all the time. When you can get a command of what it is that you're doing, you just play with more confidence. And you're flying around the field rather than sometimes overthinking it because you're not quite sure. You don't have uh, the proper command of what it is that you're doing. And it's nobody's fault. It just sometimes is a process to get there. Uh, And somebody like Cleve Farrell talking about that and the understanding of that side of the game, it has a chance to make him an even better player than he is. And he already is a pretty darn good player. If this can help him now be able to to really hone in on some of those pass rushing responsibilities and, and wreaking a little bit more havoc in that on that side of things, he's going to be a complete player. And he's already a very good player. But to be a complete player, and he knows this, uh, he's going to have to get some of those sack-type numbers and be a, more of a factor uh, on that side of things. And I think he's got the capability, the power, the strength, the speed – to be able to do that. Uh, now, if he can 
add that mental aspect of it and just understanding it a little bit better, it's going to help. Hey, by the way, before we uh, before we move on, I just want to let you guys know that um, Chefs for Kids Poker Tournament uh, is back. And uh, our good friends over at Embajador Baja, in Tequila uh, help out with this uh, every Tuesday, the first Tuesday of each month starting tonight. Uh, over at the South Point Casino uh, at 6.30 is when um, the cards start to fly. Uh, you probably want to check in about 6.20 or so, uh, if not before, uh, to be able to uh, secure your spot. Uh, what it is is uh, it's, a, it's a benefit um, to benefit the uh, Chefs for Kids, which do a great job. It's an organization that does a great job feeding kids that need it and putting food on kids' tables. Uh, and we all know how important that is. The buy-in is $60, uh, and then you can rebuy uh, as much as you want until the last table is set. Uh, there's all sorts of prizes, um, including some bottles of uh, Embajador tequila, uh, which you know uh, I'm all about. Uh, but honestly, it's a great event. It's fun. Uh, you know, it's poker, obviously, uh, and and of course, it's it's something for a really good cause as well. And I think that's the most important part of it uh, is that it's helping a lot of kids. So tonight, six thirty, the Station Casino uh, Poker for uh, excuse me, Chefs for Kids Poker Tournament. Uh, they had to kind of cut it down because of COVID nineteen, but it's back up and running the first Tuesday of every month, starting tonight. Over at the station casino, and before I get out of here, uh, I'll leave you a phone number if you uh, want to, uh, to give somebody a call uh, to get some more information. Uh, so uh, go check that out. I really appreciate it. You'll probably see me there at some point. Trust me on that. Uh, we're going to go out to the Raider Nation guest line and welcome in our good friend, uh, Q Myers, who joins us uh, on a weekly basis. And uh, we always appreciate uh, him giving us some time. Uh, Q, did you enjoy uh, the Memorial Day weekend? I did, but it was really weird. It, it just felt really weird to not have a show to do or not be on the air or not. You know what I mean? It just it seems weird when you don't have something to do, but it's nice and relaxing to kind of get you recharged and get you ready to rock and roll. And also just remembering why we were off on Monday, Memorial Day. You know, shout out to, you know, all those obviously that, you know, we lost, uh, that, that lost their lives in battle to, you know, to let us knuckleheads like me allowed to be talking on the radio uh, with guys like you that do a great job. So, uh, you know, shout out to all military and shout out to uh, all current current military veterans, all all that man. I just I just I can never thank veterans and and uh, ones that we lost enough for what they've done for us. I agree, and uh, you know, as as with a lot of different things these days, um, things get uh, politicized. This is one that doesn't need to be political. We all know um, right. what the men and women that have paid the ultimate price, um, what, what they mean, like you said, for, for us to be able to sit here and talk about football, uh, and also not forgetting, uh, the ones that always, that come back, uh, and, and, you know, uh, face a slew of issues coming back sometimes. Not everybody comes back, you know, ready to, to rock and roll, um, like, like before, and they need our help, and uh, and we, we all need to pay attention to that uh, more than we probably do. So uh, that aside, uh, Q, you know, you, you just you, speaking kind of on a on a little bit of a somber note, uh, but we we saw, you know, this week, this past week, uh, a lot of different things got thrown our way uh, this this last this last week. Fans are being allowed back into the stands. We saw some incidents of knuckleheadedness uh, happening uh, at various arenas in the NBA. Uh, then we saw, uh, you know, the tennis star uh, uh, Naomi um, uh, Asaki talking about having to pull out of a tournament, yeah. um, you know, because 
you know, there's some mental health, uh, uh, a mental health situation going on. She's, you know, wary right now of, of sitting down and doing press conferences, you know, post-game press conferences. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you make of, A, the first part of it, which is just sheer stupidity, um, and what we can do to start curtailing that, but then also uh, with Naomi and the and this position that she's taking? Well, you know, with, with the with the players or with the uh, you know with the basketball situation, with people coming onto the court, throwing stuff at players, spitting on players. I mean, that's just one hundred percent unacceptable. There's no excuse for it. There's no valid reason. Or, well, they've been cooped up in, inside for a year, so they don't know how to act. Like, I'm not buying that at all. I don't want to use that as an excuse. I won't allow that to be an excuse because that just goes back to home training, Vinny. If you got a lick of home training, you know how to act when you're in public. I mean, and if you don't know how to act, you don't need to be in public. And just because you buy a ticket, just because you sit close to the, the action, and just because, you know, maybe even an advertising company hits you up and says, hey, uh, go out there on the court and do this, and that'll be great, and we'll bail you out of jail, whatever the situation is, you shouldn't do any of that. And it's just it's a shame because, right, like you said, you're starting to get fans back in the stands, and all of a sudden it's starting to be like a black eye on the situation. And luckily so far nobody's gotten hurt. I just hope that it does not escalate and, and, and involve someone getting hurt at some point. That's my biggest fear, especially with basketball players. They're right there. I mean, football players, it's one thing because it's going to take a while to run into the, onto the field and actually get to a player and possibly hurt them. But, man, these guys, these basketball players are so close to the action, men and women. Uh, you know, it just, it's just so, so – it could be so scary. So, hopefully nothing escalates from it and people calm down and start acting like they've had a little bit of home training. Now, as far as Naomi goes, you know, this is one of those that it's, it's, it's a tough conversation because, one, I feel, I feel for her and I feel for anyone who deals with mental, mental health because that's a real deal thing. And you don't know – Who's dealing with what just by looking at them? Someone could be walking down the street and looking like they're all good, and they sound like they're all good when they're talking to you, and they could be dealing with the most serious issues, and you just have no idea. And she could be a champion like Naomi is and still be dealing with mental health issues. And it's just, it's just tough because, you know, she doesn't want to do these, these media sessions. One, because... I guess there's questions that are being thrown at her that she doesn't feel like she wants to answer. Uh, there's two where it, it gives her anxiety, which is obviously a serious issue. And then you just kind of wonder, as from even my point of view and you as well, doing the same thing, doing media, it's like, well, I, I understand that. How do you get to a middle ground where she can still provide some kind of something afterwards, but maybe not the same setting? And I don't mean just her exclusively. I mean any player in general because, again, it's, it's, and I've said this before, it's kind of part of the gig of being a professional, you know, of being in this setting, and even, you know, just being uh, a college athlete. You know, some of these college athletes, go, they go out there after, after uh, games and, and have to talk to the media. So it, it, I, I wonder where the middle ground is. You know what I mean? Like, where do you come to an agreement where, okay, this is enough, you don't have to go and do it on this level because you still want to be, you still want to be cautious about mental healthness and you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, be abusive towards them. Yeah, and um, there's so many. You know, I've been I've been trying to find the right way to express this uh, right. and, and talk about it, especially uh, in in Naomi's case in the sport of tennis in particular, and some of these individual sports like golf and tennis and and, and sports like that. You know, I, I did some research on on Naomi, and uh, it looks like she's been basically on the tennis track since. You know, 
basically almost the very beginning of her life uh, right. to, yep. to the point where, you know, she was homeschooled in the evenings to be able to devote all of her time to tennis during the day. It was just tennis, 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 you know, and, and you know, I'm just wondering if we're sweeping something under the rug, uh, Q. Uh, we're, we're, we're focused on this whole media part of it, which is important. And, and I'm glad that this has brought some awareness uh, to what she's talking about because she's mentioned anxiety and mental health. Um, and we're seeing it. Kevin Love, you know, recently has, has talked yeah. about it. Other players have talked about it. And I, and I just look at some of the pressure that we're putting on these kids from a very early age. Naomi, I think, turned pro when she was 14 years old. Why are exactly. we okay with 14-year-olds turning professional in a very competitive sports like, like tennis? In an, it's almost a very isolated sport as, as well. And I'm not an expert, and so I'm just kind of talking off my head. But are we not seeing some correlation here? And is it time maybe we should start re-looking at something like that where, where, where a kid can start professional sports at 14 years old, let alone everything that they've gone through and endured just to get to that point, to be able to, you know, given up a lot of their childhood just to get to that point. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. And that, that was something I was talking about on my radio show earlier today was that exact point. You know, I mean, she was a pro at 14. She's done everything her whole life on the tennis court, which, by the way, is not a team sport. That's a very individual sport. So what does that do? That plays on your mental. You know what I mean? That's that shows mental toughness, mental fatigue. That, that, that's what she goes through, you know, and, and all these different elements add up. And so, you know, a lot of times we hear different entities and different, you know, sports always want these players to be able to go pro right away when they feel like they can go. Sometimes, Vinny, their skills can put them in the professional realm where their brain is not developed yet to that point where they need to be a professional, you know. And, and look, I get it. Some, some players will, will be that extreme athlete that can just handle everything. And then there's a lot that don't, you know. I mean, we saw when it was when it was the coming out of high school for uh, basketball players going straight to the league. Some guys made it, some guys didn't. Everyone's not Kobe Bryant. Everyone's not Kevin Garnett. You know, there's a lot of Sebastian Telfair's out there. There's a lot of other guys out there that couldn't get it done. Everyone's not LeBron James, you know, and he was able to get it done. But not everyone has that same story, you know. And, and there's just so many countless stories on all these athletes and you know one guy that came up today that I was talking about I'm sure you've read this as well Arch Manning Arch Manning who is a 2023 recruit he's going to be you know he'll, he'll be a 2023 kid is obviously related to the Mannings uh, he's going to be a big time quarterback there's a million schools that are going after him he had to get a separate cell phone just for coaches to call him he's been getting phone calls Vinny since the eighth grade from coaches where do we draw the line? I don't need my eighth grader to be calling and talking to coaches. I need my eighth grader to concentrate in school in eighth grade. You know what I mean? Like, what, what can an eighth grader do for you if you're a college coach besides nothing? You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing that they can do at that point. There's, there's got to be a line, in my opinion, where you say, okay, this is too much. This, you, you don't need to be calling an eighth grader. An eighth grader. That's just ridiculous. I agree. Uh, we're talking to uh, Q Myers, our good friend. You could follow him at your boy Q254. Um, Q, I remember a few years ago when Blake Griffin was with the, uh, with, with the Clippers. Uh, they're yeah. in the playoffs, and we're on the road. It's a practice day. Um, they're getting ready to go out there uh, to practice, and the media is, is – we're there at that point, and uh, we're just kind of shooting the you-know-what, right? And I'm looking right. at Blake, and I told him, I go, dude, man, I mean, I look at you, and I think to myself – 
you could have made you could have been a good football player. You know, like I look at the power, the size, all of that kind of stuff, and he starts laughing, and he so he starts telling me about how. He goes, I actually did play football. I was a wider receiver. He goes, I was, you know, much skinnier back then, thinner. Um, I played, I played, you know, wide receiver. Then he started telling me about how his, his one of his favorite sports was baseball. So he played baseball. He played, you know, uh, football. He obviously played basketball. And his dad was a renowned basketball coach in the state of Oklahoma. And, and his dad basically told him and his brother, you're playing other sports, man. You know, <laughs> you're not just going right. to pl- do the whole basketball thing. And, you know, he told me, he's like, you know, and I, I look back and I'm so glad that he did. He goes, because the way I'm wired, if I had just been basketball, basketball, basketball all the way through, we probably wouldn't be talking here right now. I would have lost interest, whatever, you know, like it just, it, it would have been burnout. And, you know, and then he, he, and he was laughing and he was telling me, he goes, I didn't really start lifting weights until I got to college. Like, seriously, that, you know. The, the, right. the coach, the strength and conditioning coach handed us, you know, the, the workout regime. Oh, okay, now I gotta, I'm going to start adding that to the whole equation. He goes, and he told me, he goes, I was talking to some kids just the other day, and their parents were telling me, they're like 12, 11 years old, the parents have them on an Olympic training program. He's like, you don't need right. to be on an Olympic training weightlifting no. program at 11 and 12 years old. But, Q, this is what we're doing now. And in Naomi's case... You know, and I'm not pointing any fingers at the parents. Obviously, look what the great job that they did to raise a champion. Right. I do wonder if there was something lost in translation along the way. And we've seen Andre Agassi. Um, yeah. Uh, Jennifer Capriati, remember she had some issues. Yep. Uh, she yep. was a tennis proto- protege. Um, so there's there's track records for this, and there's track records. I think we're starting to see it more. Q in in some of these, even basketball, all these travel tournaments, man, all these showcase events. There's seven on seven showcase events uh, almost every weekend in football. Where is, when is it enough? Is enough? Let these kids go and be kids for a little while. Well, see, that's the problem, you know, and, and a lot of times we put that on ourselves as parents where we are almost training our, our kids to be pros before they need to be pros. They just need to be, like you said, kids, enjoy life. Don't have any responsibility of having to be the greatest athlete or have to be the best at this sport, you know, because, again, you will get burned out, you know, and, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example. My, my son is a, is a really good basketball player. He loves it. And a lot of people tell him, hey, man, at some point you're going to get paid to play this game. And I'll never tell him that. I will never say that to him because I'll never put that pressure on him. I just say, if you enjoy the game, go play the game. He's going to go to Western Oregon. He's got a scholarship to go there. Great. He might go there and say, you know what? I'm glad that basketball got my education, but I really don't want to play basketball. I will never put that that responsibility on him like he has to go do something like that because it's, I don't think it's fair to them. You know, everyone has their own path. Everyone chooses their own path. And whenever he figures out exactly what he wants to do, he'll do. If it happens to be basketball, great for him. You know, not me, but great for him. And a lot of times, it's, it's almost these parents are pushing their kids where you have to do this, not only for me, but you have to do it for we. You know, and so that's a lot of pressure that these kids don't need to have on their shoulders all the time. And, and we get it. Every situation is different, you know. So sometimes that's that's the only way out is, is hoping that your kid makes it. But, man, that's a lot of pressure to put on a kid. Um, real quick, and we're going to take a break, and uh, uh, hopefully you can stay on. But real quick, did you see the uh, documentary on uh, Stefan Marbury, Starbury? I have seen that, yes. It's it's exactly what you just talked about. The pressure that he was under right. since his childhood. And, you know, it, it, it kind of sucks to me that he had to go all the way to Japan or China to kind of find himself and to get it calmed back down, to become almost 
feel like he was actually loved instead of always just being used and abused and taken advantage of. And people had their hooks in him. And uh, it's just, you know, it's it's we we have to take a we have to take a good long look at, at what we're doing. Kevin Love talked about, um, you know, the mental health, and and a lot of athletes are now. And I think we should start paying attention when we get back. I also want to talk about Kwame Brown, and I think some of the role that the media and some of these loudmouths, Stephen A. Smith, Skip Bayless. Yeah. The damage that they're doing as well. And I'm sorry to call guys out, but I really believe they're doing damage, more damage than they think. Uh, and Q, if you could stay stay uh, on board after the break, I'd really appreciate it. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila and Bahadur. No one gets you closer to the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. It's a Tuesday. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Uh, joined still with our good friend uh, Q Myers. Q, before we uh, left for break, um, was talking about this whole thing with Kwame Brown. Um, I, I feel like Kwame is, you know, he's kind of reached a boiling point. Um, I, I've met Kwame, covered the Lakers when he was there. Seemed like a, a genuinely good guy. Um, I, I get it. He didn't live up to expectations that others put on him. He wasn't. He didn't draft himself number one. You know, the, the Washington Wizards and, and, and Michael Michael Jordan made that pick. Uh, but to this day, he he hasn't been able to live that down. And you know, I, I look at people like Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith. I know it sounds like it's all fun and games. I really do understand that part of it. But I cringe at some of the things that they say, and I don't think they truly realize the potential damage of it. Words are powerful, especially when you keep repeating them and repeating them and repeating them uh, and not relenting. And even when people are saying, hey, man, enough is enough, they double down uh, on the negativity and the gratuitous put downs. You know, Kwame Brown, I haven't thought about Kwame Brown in, in a long time. He, his career came and went. He did the best he could. It didn't quite work out the way some had expected, but I don't blame him. I don't hold it against him. I don't think anything less of him whatsoever as a human being. I, I do you th- am I am I barking up the wrong tree here uh, to say, hey, full stop, Skip Bayless, full stop, uh, Stephen A. Smith. Start thinking about some of the things that you're saying about fellow human beings. No, no, you're not wrong at all. And you know, I think that Kwame's done a great job of staying quiet. And not, you know, worrying about what everyone says until it's like, okay, like you said, enough is enough. And now I'm going to fire back because, well, the hits keep coming, the hits keep coming. And I've stayed in my lane. I've stayed out of the, you know, I've stayed out of the, the conversation. Uh, you haven't heard me fire back. And all of a sudden, you know, everyone wants to, to continue to fire this thing up, this train up. And, and now, okay, here it comes. And the thing about it is what I've learned about Kwame Brown, and maybe you know this, I did not know this. This dude is, in my opinion, he's like the big homie that you have that is kind of quiet, doesn't say a whole lot, but when it comes down to, to time for business, he's about that life. I mean, he, he can he can handle his business if he needs to, and that's why I kind of find it funny that once he started firing back and really started firing back on Stephen A., on Stephen Jackson, on Matt Barnes, on Skip Bayless, on everyone that he could, 
All of a sudden, he got real quiet. He got real quiet. You know, Gilbert Arenas was like, hey, I don't want no more problems. I'm not going to say that. You know what I mean? It's like all of a sudden, these guys started backing down because they realized, like, wait a minute, man. We just woke up a sleeping giant, and this dude is really about that life where guys like Stephen A. and Skip Bayless, they just talk like they're about that life. But they ain't really about that life. Yeah, exactly. And and now more than ever, where, where mental uh, health is an issue and – it's becoming more, uh, we're, we're living tense times right now. Uh, for whatever yeah. reason, you want to blame whoever it is that you want to blame. I've got some suspects uh, out there uh, that I point some fingers at. But be that as it may, we are living in intense in times. We see that in mass shootings, th- incidents, yeah. people going off, you know, at the, at the drop of a hat, people running onto courts, people spitting on, on players. There's, there's a, there's, an anxiety or something in the air. There's a tenseness that's that's in the air. And I think that we all just need to be a little bit more responsible. I get that Skip Bayless gets paid a lot of money to do what he does, and he has to keep pushing that envelope, as does as Stephen A. Smith, as does many of the, the those national-type um, you know, talking heads, basically. They stir it up. Right. That's what their job is to do. I just wish... With all these people that are kind of calling out a little bit, like, I'm hurting. <laughs> you know, this is hurting me. Right. That we could just be a little bit more cognizant of that and understand that at the end of the day, these are human beings you're talking about. And just because Russell Westbrook, when Colin Cowherd, you know, bashes Russell Westbrook, um, who's a fantastic player, a Hall of Fame player, to me, a top 50, 60 player of all time, where do you get off, like, bashing a guy that's that good just because he doesn't you know, win a championship or put the ring on it. I don't, I just, it, it's, I'm, I'm getting tired of it, man. Yeah, I think a lot of people are getting tired of it, you know, including people that listen, you know, uh, just regular listeners, just fans of, of different sports. And, you know, the thing about it is the reason I really get upset with the Stephen A's and the Skip Baylesses and the Cowherds at time, you know, Cowherd, I think, has a little bit more yeah. uh, of uh, understanding and, and a lot more respect than, than those other guys. But even at times, he, he has his moments. It just makes our whole industry look so bad, and it makes our industry look so fake And that, you know, all we do is kind of flip-flop and, and make up stuff and say stuff that's just outlandish just to get clicks or to get reactions. When that's not the case, Vinny, you bust your tail off to bring great coverage of whoever you're covering. It could be the Lakers. It could be the Raiders. It could be the Rams. It doesn't matter. You have your name, and that's what you stand by is your name, and whatever you put out there on paper or on the radio is, is what you're doing. I do the same thing. Every day I go on the radio or do a podcast or whatever I do or join a show like I am right now, I'm speaking the truth as I believe it. But because of these guys that get paid these tons of dollars, like you mentioned, and they have this huge following and got a bazillion followers on Twitter and they're on TV every single day, because they flip-flop and they get loud and boisterous and start calling people out and, and, and making fun of these guys and think that that's the way to do it, it all of a sudden makes us look like, well, these guys don't know what they're talking about. This this is who knows what they're talking about. And so they flip-flop. Then all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, hold on. And then it's like, you media guys. Well, no, it's not the same. It's not the same get down, man. We're not all a part of the same the same group. We're not all we don't all hang out on the same street. They hang out on one block and we hang out on another. And we actually have to bust our tails to get credibility where they just kind of shoot the blank and just let it happen. Well, and I I'll, and this is the last thing I'll say. Uh, the other part of that equation is I don't see any of those dudes in the locker room facing the music right. when they talk right. what they talk. They, you know, and, and you have to face the person that you just, you know, threw under the bus. They don't have to do that. When that 
is taken out of the equation, everybody gets really comfortable in what they're saying, really courageous right. in what they're saying. Whatever I write, now last year was uh, you know different because of COVID-19, but in any team that I've covered, city that I've been in, whatever the case might be, whatever I've written, and I've been a columnist, I've had to call people out, all of that. I have to go into the locker room pretty much the very next day yep. and face whoever it is that I, that I criticized or, or wrote about. And, um, and it, it takes, there, it, it's a different, you, you, you're more responsible when that happens. You're, yep. you're just more Agreed. responsible when that happens. So, uh, I, I, and when I don't see those guys in the locker room anymore, Skip Bayless, you know, he used to be, but he doesn't, he isn't anymore, you know, show up one day. And face right. the person that you're talking uh, those things about, you know. So that's just that's just where I stand. Q, thanks so much for spending some extra time with us. I know we didn't talk much about the Raiders, but this was, you know, kind of pressing on me a little bit. And uh, and uh, you know, I couldn't think of anybody better to talk to about it than you, man. Thank you very much. No, it's all good, man. Anytime you want to have any conversation, I'm all for it, man. I appreciate you having me on as always. All right, thank you very much. That's Q Myers, our good friend. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador.